0: all right well it is great to be back with you guys for another question and answer night had a blast with you all bowling and having our i guess this is our first annual friendsgiving at least since i've been here so uh, hopefully we can continue to do these in the years to come i know we had some delicious food this evening so shout out to all the youth committee members and adult leaders and even some youth who brought some food and drinks and refreshments for us to enjoy tonight Uh, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to tend to these questions that we have. We've got several that have been submitted from some youth, from some adult leaders, and also from just ordinary church members here at FBC Edna. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will address these questions that have been submitted, and hopefully the Lord will richly bless us during our time together this evening. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that our hearts are overflowing with thankfulness tonight. As we prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving, we are just reminded that we have so many blessings to be grateful for. Most significantly, Lord, the greatest blessing that you have given to us and the ultimate blessing that any human being could ever be thankful for is that of salvation, that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, a sinner can be rescued from the clutches of hell and to be received into your heavenly family as an adopted son or daughter in Christ. What a what an inestimable privilege that is, Lord, to be counted among your people and then to have a purpose in this life, to put you on display, to, to serve and minister to other people, to To live every aspect of our lives for Your glory. What greater purpose is there that we have been made aware of through Your grace, opening our eyes, rescuing us from spiritual deadness, and transferring us into the domain of Christ, the kingdom of light? We're so grateful, Lord, for that reality, and I pray and trust that every person here in this room and those who may be listening to this recording at a different time that that would be true of them. That that they know you, Father, through faith in Christ, and that they are walking with a posture of gratitude for all that you've done for them in Christ. We now ask, Father, for your favor during this question and answer night. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would give me wisdom to answer these questions biblically, and if I don't have an answer that I can provide, that I would do research on those questions and point the person who asked the question to various resources that might help them come to a biblical and theologically accurate answer to that question. So God, we just ask that by virtue of you dwelling in our midst, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to submit to the truths that will be discussed from your word tonight. And Father, that you would begin to prepare our hearts to worship you tomorrow on the Lord's Day, uh, during Sunday school and also during corporate worship. We love you, God. We give you thanks for this time. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Right question submitted this is actually from uh, one of our youth committee members can somebody commit suicide and still go to heaven yeah. you know growing up I was told that if somebody commits suicide then automatically that means that they're going to hell that that suicide was viewed sort of as a unforgivable sin and by God's grace over the course of the last several years uh, I've come to have a more biblical and theologically correct perspective on this question and of course the answer to this question is yes genuine Christians can commit suicide and still go to heaven of course if you're saved you can never lose your salvation um, we affirm that on the basis of Scripture, on the basis of Christ's declaration in passages like John six thirty-seven 37 uh, through 44, that those whom the Father has given to the Son will not be lost and that Jesus will raise them up on the last day, or Philippians 1, 6, that the God who has begun a good work in the believer will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we know on the basis of Scripture that nobody can lose their salvation based on a particular sin that's committed and that's what suicide is it is a sin Uh, it's the sin of murder the sin of murder is the premeditated act of taking one's life uh, particularly the life of somebody uh, who is innocent Uh, innocent in the sense of um, not not in the sense of them not being sinful, we're all sinful but innocent in the sense of they've done nothing to merit having their life taken so suicide would fall under that category And in Scripture, we know that all sins are forgivable other than one sin, and it's the sin of unbelief. It's fascinating in the Gospel of Mark, in answering this question, Mark chapter 3, if you've got a Bible or if you're taking notes, you can flip over to that passage. Mark 3, beginning in verse 22 and following we read that the scribes came down from Jerusalem and they were saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and he's casting out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And after Jesus heard this, he began to speak to the religious leaders in parables saying, "'How can Satan cast out Satan? "'If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. "'If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand.'" If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying Jesus has an unclean spirit." So what that passage is saying, in that context, the Jewish religious leaders had seen indisputable proof, as revealed by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was performing supernatural miracles. The miracles and the acts that Jesus performed could only be attributed to a supernatural source. So it left the Jewish religious leaders with one of two possibilities. We can say that the supernatural source of this man's actions is God, If we do that, then we have to affirm that Jesus is God's Son, that He is the Messiah, and that we have to submit to His Lordship. They certainly didn't want to do that. So there's another possibility, another supernatural source that Jesus could have been operating out of. And that supernatural source was none other than a satanic source. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the Jewish religious leaders, they recognized we can't dispute the fact that Jesus is performing supernatural, divine miracles, or or miracles that would appear to make Him divine. And there's only two categories of possible possible sources that could be providing Jesus with that ability. It's either God or it's Satan. And because the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't want to submit to the Lordship of Christ, they attributed Jesus' power to Satan. Of course, Jesus, masterfully, as the greatest teacher who's ever walked this earth, said, Why would Satan work against himself? If I'm really doing these deeds, doing these miracles by the power of Satan, Satan is literally undermining his own operation, his own prerogatives. A house divided cannot stand. If I'm an operative of Satan, and I'm casting out demons, which are also operatives of Satan, we're undermining Satan's plan. So you see the genius in Christ's logic there. Well, here's the part of the question that directly or the part of the text that directly pertains to this question. It's this: Jesus says, "Whoever blasphemies, or any blasphemies committed by men, will be forgiven, except what theologians have noted as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this: it's to come to grips with divine truth." indisputably see that Jesus is who he claimed to be and to say, nope, I don't believe. Essentially, my friends, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to come to grips with the gospel or with divine truth and to refuse to submit to that truth despite there being indisputable proof of the truthfulness of whether it be scripture, the gospel, or any legitimate source of divine truth that comes from the Most High. So, in answering this question about suicide, we recognize that suicide, though a a tragic sin, it is not unforgivable. Suicide, just like adultery, just like lying, just like pride, just like any other sin, suicide is able to be forgiven by God if a person is truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, could suicide be evidence that that person was not saved? Maybe. However, we ultimately can't make a definitive judgment about a person's soul on the basis of one sin, David being a great example of that. Had an affair with Bathsheba, had Bathsheba's husband killed, covered up that sin for at least nine months, maybe upwards of a year or so, we recognize David on the authority of Scripture that he was a true believer. Externally at the time during that season of sin, Someone might have said, well, maybe he was just faking it all those years. But David bore the fruit of repentance. And the grace of God, the blood of Christ, covered David's sin and restored him in his relationship with the Lord. He got forgiveness for that sin on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the same with somebody who commits suicide. Though a, a horrific sin, a tragic sin, certainly never the answer to depression or hardships in this life a believer can truly commit that sin. Um, And of course, because we know that true believers will never lose their salvation, they can commit the sin of suicide and go into the presence of God in heaven. Um, So that's how I would go about answering that question. Very important question. The person who asked this question actually had a close friend commit suicide a few years ago. So I pray that uh, this answer will be a comfort to him that if If his uh, friend was a true believer, and I trust from the testimony of this person that they were, he'll see them in heaven someday, Uh, despite that, of course, being a tragic sin that was committed in the taking of his own life. All right. Takes us to another question. What is the one question that Islam cannot answer? Well, I'm sure there's many questions theologically philosophically, metaphysically, that Muslims cannot answer satisfactorily anyways. They have answers, sure, but we know that the Christian worldview provides the best answers for how we understand the world and how we understand uh, God and uh, relationship with him, salvation and things of that nature. I would say that the most important question, though, that a Muslim cannot sufficiently answer is this. How can a holy God forgive sinful man? You see, in Islam, you are able to go to paradise if you effectively commit more good works than bad works. Allah is regarded as powerful. He's regarded as holy, as righteous. And, of course, we, as human beings, even in the Islamic faith, We're sinners. We commit sin. We commit transgressions against Allah. So the question that the Muslim has to answer is how does Allah letting sinful man into his presence not violate his righteousness, his holiness, his justice? How do we answer that conundrum as Christians? How can a holy God remain just and righteous and yet allow sinners to enter into his presence for eternity? What's the solution to that question, the answer to that question? Anybody want to take a crack at it? Michael? Yeah, th- that, I mean, that's, that's, that's definitely a, a big part of it. So he said that God takes away the sin of the sinner. Now, how does he do that, Michael? Or anybody? How does God take away our, our sin? He gave Who's he? Jesus. Jesus, right? So, Jesus died on the cross. So, what happens there? Our sin is removed from us. Okay? So on it was placed onto Jesus. Jesus Pay the penalty for that sin at the cross so God's justice was satisfied. Now, how are we able to go into God's presence though, right? Because if all we've had is our sins washed away, are we righteous at that point? No, we're sinless. But sinless is not righteous. How are we able to go into God's kingdom? Our sins washed away, it's cleared out by virtue of Jesus' death at the cross bearing God's wrath in the place of those who would believe in Jesus. How are we made righteous, though? sigh Yeah, faith is the instrument in which um, I don't want to give away the answer that I'm trying to say. So uh, you're on the right track there. Um, sorry, sorry, listener. I don't want to give the answer just yet. Um, Michael? Using the instrument called faith, God comes into the human and We're justified. Okay. Not justified by our works. Our, our works don't make us righteous. Christianity or- For Christianity. Okay. This is very important, guys. This is if, if you if you learn anything in youth, this is what you need to learn. This is this is the heart of the Christian faith. This is this is how we can answer the question that Muslims and Jews and every other religion can't. How can a holy God or how can the how can the deities, if you're Polytheistic and they've got wacky views. <laughs> but let's just say, let's just, for the sake of simplification, how can sinful man be right with a God who is righteous and holy? How does Christianity solve that problem? So we've already gotten part of it. Our sin is is, is as it were, removed from us. We're cleansed on the basis of Jesus dying on the cross in the place of every sinner who would ever live or every sinner who would ever place their faith in him. Okay, but now we're sinless at that point. Where does righteousness come in? Because what does God demand of us? He not only demands us be without sin; he demands us to be perfect and thought, word, and deed. So, how do we get righteous in God's sight? This is important. Was Jesus perfectly righteous? So, how do we get that righteousness? Okay. So, so we how do not get the righteousness there. We do so we get his righteousness, okay? And when does that take place? When Whenever, we Whenever we die. We ask God into our body. There you go, Michael. That's the answer. Whenever we ask oh, yeah, I we were, hypothetically I thought we you already saved at this point. Yeah. So so let me explain, let me explain to you what I'm trying to go for here. And go ahead and write this down because this is something y'all need to commit to memory. Christianity can be summarized in two words. Double imputation. Double imputation. That's Christianity 101. And let me explain that to you. At the moment a sinner believes that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for all who would ever believe and rose victoriously from the grave three days later. At the moment a person comes to faith in the gospel, my sin is imputed or credited, counted. There's some different adjectives there. My sin is credited or imputed to Jesus Christ. And His sacrifice at the cross is as if He is bearing an eternal punishment in my place so at that moment that I come to faith it's as if I was on the cross in Jesus' place and God poured out an eternity's worth of wrath upon me that's what Jesus did at the cross he bore an eternal weight of condemnation in the place of all who would ever believe but also that's, that's one side of the imputation coin at the moment somebody believes Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to me and now, when God looks at me, it's as if I lived Jesus' perfect life without sin. So when I come to faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to me. My unrighteousness is imputed to Christ, just as the satisfied and perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness is now mine in the sight of God. The Protestant reformers said, Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously justified, yet sinful. That's the gospel. Double imputation. Or as the old hymn writer wrote, His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange. My unrighteousness has given to Christ and is satisfied through Christ's death at the cross. His righteousness given to me through the instrument of faith, and now I'm regarded as without sin by God for all of eternity future. I'm regarded not just without sin, but as perfectly righteous. The gospel is not just Jesus died on the cross for you and your sins were forgiven. That's part of the gospel, but all that does is bring us to a neutral balance. God says, you shall be holy as I am holy, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Also reiterated in the book of Leviticus as well. So God demands perfect righteousness. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying, you must be perfect. Well, how can we be perfect? The Sermon on the Mount shouldn't make you feel, Man, I did this, I did this, I did that. I'm doing pretty good. No, the Sermon on the Mount should make everyone who reads it say, Man, I can't live up to this. How in the world am I going to measure up to God's standards? And that's the gospel. The good news is you can't measure up to it, but Jesus did in your place. All you need to do is trust in him and you'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll be credited with his perfect righteousness. Double imputation. That's the gospel. Memorize that. Meditate on that. Second Corinthians 5. Let me just give you a beautiful picture of that from scripture. This is probably the key text. I'll give you two texts. Second Corinthians 5. Write this down if you're taking notes. I'll read the whole text, Second Corinthians 5, 14, all the way to verse 21. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And Jesus died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation." Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's double imputation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. God the Father crediting our unrighteousness to Jesus Christ at the cross so that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The righteousness of God in Christ. That perfect spotless righteousness that's given to us through faith alone as our sins our unrighteousness are credited to Christ at the cross and again that all happens as it were in a legal transaction at the moment that a sinner comes to saving faith and then first peter 3:18 Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit the just for the unjust that's what it is, my friends. That's double imputation. The just Christ for the unjust or for the unrighteous, us. There's a transaction, an exchange that takes place at the cross. Faith is the means through which that exchange takes place on behalf of a sinner. Does that make sense? It's so important to know that. Um, let me give you, you know, this wasn't part of the question, but I'll give you bonus What's the difference? One of the many differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestantism says that we're justified by imputation. Faith as the means through which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the sinner and the unrighteousness of the sinner is imputed to Christ. Imputation is at the heart of the gospel according to Protestantism. Roman Catholicism, infusion is at the heart of the gospel. What is infusion? It's the soul being made righteous through progressive acts of good works and um, ultimately purgatory. Because when you commit a mortal sin, according to Roman Catholic theology, you make it to where you have no hope of going directly into heaven after you die. You have to do good works. You have to do the sacraments throughout the course of your earthly life. And then when you die, any remaining remnants of sin or unrighteousness where God's grace hasn't been infused into the soul to purge out that unrighteousness, you've got to spend time in purgatory to purge your soul, to cleanse your soul of that unrighteousness so that God's grace can be further infused into the soul to make it righteous. And then eventually, whenever that takes place, potentially hundreds or thousands of years in purgatory, then you get to go to heaven imputation is Protestantism infusion is Roman Catholicism R.C. Sproul has some great work on this would encourage you to consider that you can find it at Ligonier Ministries uh, online, look it up Side, do you have a question? Okay, go for it That's right baby that's exactly right, right now you will be with me in paradise and he was completely unrighteous. He had no righteousness. All he did was exercise faith right before he died. Exactly right, Cy. Very good. Does anyone have any questions, though, about this? Imputation. So, like, this, is, this, is, this is as basic to Christianity as it gets. This is the gospel. This is what makes us Baptists and not Roman Catholic. Among many other things, of course. All right, moving on. How does the sovereignty of God relate to evangelism? In other words, if God is sovereign and is only going to save the elect, why should we evangelize? Well, there's nothing controversial about that question now, is there? Oh, repeat the question? All right. How does the sovereignty of God relate to evangelism? In other words, if God is sovereign... And is only going to save the elect, then why should we evangelize? What do you all think? Because we don't know, we don't know. And, we're do and we're called to do it. Very good, Emma. Evangelism? Yeah, evangelism is the act of going and sharing uh, the gospel with others. Sigh. Like that atheist said, if you don't spread the gospel, that is the highest act of nature. Yeah, like we talked about that atheist uh, professor. I forget what institution he was a representative of, but. Um. Yeah, he said, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in religion. But let me just say this. If there really is a hell and Christians are allegedly they have the truth to keep people out of hell and they don't go and share that truth with others, then they're the most hateful people on the face of the earth. So he understood at least intellectually what's at stake here. And I think you all really hit the nail right on the head. First and foremost, God commands us all to go and share the gospel. That should settle it, right? The Great Commission. We're Baptists, right? Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. That that should settle it, really. But if you want to get into some of the more uh, technical and um, maybe philosophical or theological um, nuances of the question, I think... Hannah really hit the nail right on the head. We don't know who the elect are. We don't have a special vision that tells us who's going to respond positively and who's not going to. We also know on the basis of texts like the parable of the wheat and tares that there's people in the local church that have made false professions of faith. And though they identify as Christians, they're not really saved. They're not even really elect. But we don't know who those people are. Only God does. So our job is not to worry about who the elect are and who the non-elect are. Our job is not to worry about who God might save and who God might not save. Our job is simply to go and share the gospel with anyone we have opportunity to And when we do so, we have confidence that God will ultimately save those of whom he has appointed to save from before the foundation of the world. All those whom Christ purchased and saved at the cross Some. 2,000 years ago. Let me give you guys some food for thought on this question. It's interesting, in Romans 9 and 10, two of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture, really for paradoxical reasons. Romans 9 is one of the most hated passages in all Scripture. Many churches never teach on it or don't want to talk about it because it teaches God's absolute sovereignty over who's going to be saved, on the one hand, and who's not going to be saved on the the other hand. Romans 9 is absolutely clear. God is 100% in control over who will be saved and who won't be saved. That was an eternal, predestined reality for God. It's Romans 9. Can't get around it. But Romans 10. Same letter, same context, flowing from thought of the absolute sovereignty of God. Paul calls all Christians to go and evangelize. In fact... Paul makes this guarantee, Romans ten nine, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved. Um, verse 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 17, Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing of the word of God. So Paul can go from God is absolutely sovereign over who will be saved and who won't be saved, and then he can guarantee just one chapter later... If you believe, you will be saved. Guaranteed, take it to the bank. Free invitation, you need only believe. Paul doesn't try to worry about who the elect are and who the non-elect are. Paul just simply says this, We affirm that God has an elect, but we also affirm and we must go out and share the gospel universally. And we can have absolute confidence that in doing so, if somebody responds in true faith, they will be saved. Case closed. Period. Paragraph. Now, another text. If it's not enough to believe Paul, as some liberals would say, oh, that's just Paul talking. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus Christ says on this matter. It's actually become one of my new favorite texts in all of Scripture. Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. One of the most familiar texts in all the Bible, many of you guys will have heard this before. Verse 25, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sights all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father nor does anyone know the father except the son and to anyone whom the son wills to reveal him so listen to what jesus is saying he's saying god i thank you that you have hidden certain truths from others it's the context of what he's saying he just says in the previous verses that there's these unrepentant sittings chorazin Bethsaida, Tyre, Sidon. They didn't repent. Yet they had exposure to divine truth. And and er, Jesus is saying, Father, thank you for not giving them the ability to repent. Thank you for withholding this truth from these people. Why should I thank you for that, Father? Well, he he answers it in the same verse, verse 25. He says, You've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, Sidon. You've hidden them from these people, but yet you have revealed them to infants. You've revealed them to the lowliest of the world. You, You have revealed them to those who don't know any better. They don't have any spiritual knowledge, yet you've given it to them. Father, verse 26, this was pleasing in your sight. Verse 27, no one knows the Son except the Father no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Notice that. You can't know God except those whom the Son wills to reveal them to. That's coming from Jesus. You cannot be saved unless God wills it. Absolute sovereignty of God. Full stop. But listen to this. Verse 28. The absolute sovereignty of God, verses 25, 26, and 27, verses 28, 29, 30. Man's responsibility, the gospel, the great invitation. Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, saying, yeah, God... He's absolutely sovereign over who's going to get saved. But let me tell you this much. If you're weary and heavy laden, you come to me. In fact, anyone can come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What's Christ saying? He's saying this. God's sovereign over who's going to be saved. Yet you can come to me. It's a free invitation. No one knows who the elect are except for God alone. You come to me, Jesus says. You come and you leave the results in God's hands. That's the solution to that conundrum. How does the sovereignty of God relate to evangelism? It wasn't an issue for Jesus. Sure, we can't fully resolve how they work together in our finite human minds, but Christ is emphatic in saying, God's absolutely sovereign over salvation, but I can promise you this, if you come to me in faith, you will be saved. That's a promise. It's a free invitation. We share the gospel with everybody because that was the attitude modeled by Christ. That was the attitude modeled by Paul. And of course, all that is perfectly compatible with the absolute sovereignty of God. Great question. We've got three questions covered over a span of 40 minutes. We're making great progress. What is meant when Roman Catholics talk about the Immaculate Conception? How many of you guys have heard of the Immaculate Conception before? By a show of hands. Okay. What do you all think the Immaculate Conception means? Good. Good thought. Any other thoughts on that? All right, so let me tell you what a lot of people mistakenly believe that is referred to with that. And let me tell you what the actual dogma is in Roman Catholic theology about this. You know, a lot of people use the terminology immaculate conception, and they use that to refer to Christ. They use that to refer to Christ being conceived without sin. And we can say that's true. Jesus was conceived without sin. Original sin was not imputed to Him or passed down to Him. However, in Roman Catholic theology, the technical doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is referring to the idea that Mary herself was conceived without the stain of original sin. That Mary was not a sinner. This doctrine was first proclaimed by Pope Pius IX in 1854. So in 1854, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception became canonized in Roman Catholic theology. So, is Mary without sin? No, of course she's not without sin. Now how would we prove that from Scripture? Yeah, let's let's think about it. Let's let's work through it a little bit. Well, I mean, it, the Bible says that no like, person born of Adam is was... No person born of Adam is without sin? Great, yeah, that's 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 one of the things. Romans let me give you a text for that with. Romans five, twelve and following. Listen to what Paul says. Just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death Through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offensive Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Uh, So, Romans 5 12 14. All those who were born through natural sexual reproduction is credited with the sin of Adam. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some texts there that deal with the universality of sin. Now, what if, what if let's just play devil's advocate here. What if your Roman Catholic friend or family member were to, add, were to say, well, yeah, I mean, that pertains to basically all human beings, but... You know, Mary's different. You know, she was chosen by God to be Theotokos, the mother of God. What do we do with that? We're all chosen to do something for God. Hmm, it's good. Um, yeah, that, that, we read that. That's a good thought. Let me give you one more Luke 1 46 through 47. This is a key text might be helpful to write it down. Luke 1, 46 and 47. I think this is the biggest issue with the Immaculate Conception. The idea that Mary was conceived in such a way that original sin from Adam was not passed on to her. Verse 46 of Luke 1. Mary said, My, this is the Magnificat. This is, this is after she has been told that she is going to give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. That's the preceding verses. Of course, you have Mary receiving word in the preceding verses as well that Elizabeth, her relative, is going to give birth to John the Baptist, who's the forerunner to the coming of the Messiah. And listen to what Mary says. My soul exalts the Lord, verse 47, and my soul has rejoiced in God my savior Now friends how could any how could any person be without sin and yet still need a savior It's impossible Mary viewed herself as a sinful woman whom God had shown favor towards but not in such a way that resulted in her not having any guilt, not having any sin, not committing any transgressions in her life. Mary viewed God as her savior. And we as sinners who've been forgiven by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we also rightly recognize God as our Savior. So Luke 1, 46 and 47, Romans 3, 23, Romans 5, 12 and following, uh, Romans 6, 23. Some texts that clearly demonstrate that, um, of course, not only are all natural descendants from Adam, Sinners from the moment of their conception, Psalm 51 5, another text. But with Mary, it's the same reality. Mary did not escape the stain of original sin. She needed a Savior just like we do. All right. Is being anxious a sin? Short answer it is a sin. Uh, scripture commands us in many places to be anxious for nothing. One of which, of course, very familiar text. Philippians 4, six. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. So being anxious is a sin. Um, and that's hard because we get anxious all the time. Right? We all have anxiety. We all have struggles. Um, it just goes to show, you know, we talk about what does God require? Perfection in thought, word, and deed. What is anxiety? Well, it's 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 a lack of trusting God. It's being nervous about a circumstance or a situation and taking our minds off the fact that God is absolutely in control of everything. And He's working all things together for our eternal good and for His glory. We need forgiveness from our anxiety. Shoot, it's even been well said. I think it was Spurgeon who said we even need for we even need forgiveness for our repentance because even our repentance often is not what it should be. That's how desperate we are for God's mercy and grace. I mean, we should have no inclination of self-righteousness before God because God is so holy, he's so righteous, he's so perfect and we're so sinful. That we are beggars before Him. but God is rich in mercy. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's compassionate. And He offers salvation. He offers forgiveness to all who would come to Him. And of course, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our uh, sins to the Lord, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So, we're, we're promised in Scripture, even for something like anxiety. We come to Christ in faith. We're forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. And as we find ourselves committing sins throughout the course of our life, we're promised that, that temporal, experiential um, cleansing, as it were. That, that, that assurance that we're walking in the light. We're walking in communion with God. And that comes uh, most ordinarily through regular confession uh, and prayer to the Lord. So yes, even anxiety is a sin. Um, It's a a tough one. We're going to struggle with that for the rest of our life, just like pride. None of us are going to master that in our entire lives. We're going to wrestle with it every single day. But God gives us the grace to endure. Hold on to this verse, Philippians 1.6. It's such a beautiful promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The God who saved you, justification, will sanctify you, throughout the course of your life and ultimately at either the moment of your death or at Jesus' second coming, you will be glorified. He who began that work in you, predestined it from before the foundation of the world, he will bring it to perfection, he will bring it to completion, and you will be with him for eternity future as his adopted son or daughter. All right. All right time for just a couple more here is there an age of accountability in the bible what do you guys think so the idea of the age of accountability broadly speaking is the idea that until you reach a certain age you're not held accountable for your sins in other words like if you haven't come to faith in Christ by a certain point in your life, for people who hold to this view, largely due to you not being able to understand your own sin or understand the gospel, that until you reach that particular time, you're covered in God's grace, and if you were to die, you go straight to heaven. That's the view. And there's a lot of debate on what that age would be. Some say 12 or 13. Some say younger. Um... But do you even think such a concept is taught in Scripture? Yeah, because David said that his baby, like when she was baby daddy, said, Oh, she was like a baby daddy. Okay, but does that give us a specific age? From the womb on, like we are Psalm fifty-one, five, <laughs> and sinned and my mother conceived me yes. said David Romans 5:12 like we said earlier but you know like we talked about in the fall retreat last year it's a hard thing to like yeah you know so yeah that. so what so Whit's talking about second uh, Samuel 12 when David's uh, baby that he had um, with Bathsheba was died as a result of um, his sin it was God's Judgment for his sin in that moment, among other things, for the nation of Israel, and David said, "I can't go to him, or I can't bring him back to me, but I shall go to him." And a lot of people interpret that as saying that, you know, at least from David's perspective, that child was in um, in glory, and that very well may be the case. Um, there's a lot of debate, of course, on on that text as well. What it's even trying to say, uh, but what we're what we're going for here in this particular question is is there a specific age of accountability? Charlie. I think the basics they're technically are simple because they're born in the sin and they have a simple mindset. But there is an age to where if you're not old enough then you can't understand English and everybody needs like a chance to like you know everybody needs a chance to like be able to get saved. So if they're not old enough they don't get that chance. Yeah I feel like if If God is a judge God then Any other thoughts? Well, if you hold to that view, so to speak, then what about what about the adults who are because I can't think of what's really called nowadays mentally retarded? Yeah, right. They have a child's mindset. So are you going to say that they'll never understand? No. What about the guy on the island that's never heard? There's two plus billion right now, so they'll they'll never hear the gospel probably in this lifetime. What about them? I'm just asking you to think through since you you opened up that can of worms. Morgan. Uh, To to add to what uh, Miss Lisa (laughs) said, um, I I know a friend that uh, said that uh, he believes the truth, he believes God, and when he reads Scripture, he doesn't feel anything, but whenever he hears it, he understands I just want to throw that out there uh, there's many really ways that a person can God use personally something to I and then I feel like the guy on the island didn't correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there somewhere in the Bible where it says he can even call, use the rocks to cry out? Yeah, that that there there's a text that says that but it it's referring to when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Um, Actually, I do want to hear the answer. Uh, it's, yeah, real, real quick though. Thank Jesus you, is coming into Jerusalem on on uh, what we regard today as Palm Sunday, and they're saying people are yelling Hosanna in the highest. And the religious leaders say, "You know, teacher, rebuke your disciples." And he says, "Truly, I say to you, if they stop, even the rocks will cry out." So that's that. That's referring to that specific issue. It's not really pertaining to. The age of accountability question. Jessica. Oh, I was just gonna reference that um, God reveals himself through his creation. You see the sunset, the sunrise, the hills, the Romans one. That's right. Yeah. Romans one eighteen and following. I I saw like a video and it was like think about if you had just came into this church and you heard and you were like, Oh, you were wondering did you ask the question, what if what if a person on the whole... Like, that it never heard anything about Jesus. How How is it fair that he has get a chance to be saved? And someone said that he should know because of trees and rocks in the snow. Like, I think just, that would just sound like kind of. Um, I don't think like, it's so much about, like, I mean, everything. Everything can be a testimony to God. But, like, yeah, I, I don't I think don't... it's so much about understanding the gospel through those things. It's about understanding God like in magnificence. Yeah, but how can you be saved if you don't understand God. All right. Alright, does anyone have anything else to say? Because we're now on two different unrelated topics. Let me answer the question about... Let me ask the question that was submitted. Let me answer the question that was submitted. And then we'll talk about what y'all are trying to talk about. Alright, remember, the original question that was submitted was this. Is there an age of accountability? Is there an age in which, up until a certain point, you're, you're not held accountable for your sins, and if you die, you go to heaven? There is not an age anywhere in the Bible that tells you that until you reach this time in your life, you're now, you know, you're not held accountable until you reach this particular time in your life. Nowhere in the Bible. The Bible is clear as we talked about earlier. Man is regarded as sinful from conception, Psalm 51:5, 5, Romans 5 and 5:12, and following. Uh, every descendant from Adam, from the time of conception onward, is regarded as sinful in the sight of God. There is no time period that passes in somebody's life where during that time period, you're not regarded by God as a sinner. Every person is regarded as sinful by God from the time they're conceived in the womb. Okay? There is no age. You can look throughout the whole Bible. Go Google it. Trust me, I've done it. There is no age of accountability. Um, Now, the question that... I think y'all are wanting to talk about is, okay, well, shouldn't everybody have the opportunity to hear the gospel? How would God be just if every person doesn't have a chance to hear the gospel? Well, let me... Lily, what were you going to say? I was always taught, like, growing up, like, God will come once everybody knows the gospel. That's just what I always thought. Yeah, that's that's true. Once every person who God has appointed to salvation from before the foundational world comes to salvation, comes to faith, Jesus will return. Brother Robert has said that many times. When the last person who's elect comes to faith, Jesus will come back. He's not going to come back a moment before that point. Um, So yes, that's absolutely right, Lily. Um, Now regarding this question though, is, is it unjust for God not to give everybody a chance? Well, first off, let me ask you this. Is God under any obligation to save anybody? So is he unjust if he chooses not to reveal himself in the same way to everybody? No. no so exactly, right? So, so, so it's, it's, let's think about Let's define terms. What do we say when God gives us what we don't deserve to receive? It's grace, right? So it's grace for God to reveal himself in a way that would even give somebody the opportunity to be saved. Because if we're all sinful, what do we all deserve before a holy God? Death, right? Physical death and eternal judgment in hell. So that's, that's justice. Mercy is not getting that. Grace is getting even more. Grace is getting special revelation. Grace is getting exposure to the gospel, exposure to the message that will allow a sinner to be saved. So that's grace. Okay, we've defined terms. So God is under no obligation to reveal himself in the same way to every person. You can't say he's unjust if he doesn't do that because you got, we've, we've all acknowledged in the testimony of Scripture the only thing that God is obligated to do for any sinner is condemn us to eternal judgment in hell because we've violated his law. We've sinned against him. It was well said by Jonathan Edwards. The only thing we contribute to salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary. Now, Jessica a, made a very important point. In Romans 1, 18 and following, Paul says, unquestionably, every person in the world through creation knows there's a God in their heart of hearts. They know there's a God. Creation testifies to the fact that there is a Creator. Now, that is what theologians call general revelation. That revelation cannot save anybody. You can't be saved just from knowing that there is some God or plural gods through creation. But according to Paul in Romans 1, you can be condemned by that. Um, And of course, we've violated God's commandments, so we're condemned by that as well. We're also condemned because Adam, according to Romans 5, 12 and following, we're also condemned because Adam failed to obey God perfectly. So we're held accountable on the basis of Adam's sin. We're held accountable on the basis of our own sin, So, getting what we do deserve to receive is simply justice. It's judgment for our sins. Now, the Bible nowhere says or indicates that every person will have an opportunity to hear the gospel. It's part of why we take the gospel to all the ends of the world. It's part of the reason why we're so vigilant to do so. When Jesus came into the world, there were people all over the world who didn't have a clue what was happening in the Roman Empire people on all the different continents of the world. Uh, Remember, we've been learning about this in Forerunners of the Faith in Sunday school. Christianity started with a group of about 120 believers, right? Beginning of Acts. It's 120 people in the whole world in one little bitty part of the world. Of course, the last 2,000 years, it's spread everywhere. Well, mostly. There's obviously unreached people groups and a lot at that. But... I don't want you guys to fall victim to the thought that God is somehow not just because not everybody gets a chance to hear the gospel, or because not everybody uh, gets a chance to believe the gospel. I guess that's the same saying the same thing. Just because not everybody has a chance to hear and believe the gospel doesn't mean God's not just. God's perfectly just. God's under no obligation to save or reveal Himself to everybody. And when I say reveal Himself, we're talking about special revelation. God reveals Himself to everybody in creation. That's general revelation. God revealing Himself in the Gospel and in Scripture. That's special revelation. And special revelation is an extension of God's grace and mercy to undeserving and perishing sinners. So, second part of the question that was not originally submitted but y'all wanted to go into. Will everybody have a chance to be saved? No. Will everybody have a chance to hear the gospel? No. Um, is God unjust for doing that? No. That is, I think, where we're going to leave it tonight because now we've gone for an hour. But, um, yeah, just, just remember, guys, it's very important. And, 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 and this, this bothers a lot of people. But, guys, we have to be faithful to Scripture and not judge Scripture or God by emotions or by how we would like God to be. You know what I mean? We can't just say, well, I would really like it if God would allow everybody to hear and believe. And if God doesn't do that, then, well, he's really not just or loving. We're not, we're not engaging in sound reasoning at that point. Because, again, all God is obligated to give us is justice. He's under no obligation to give us grace and mercy. And if you've heard the gospel... That's grace and mercy. If you believe the gospel, that's grace and mercy. And nobody can ever demand from God, you must give grace and mercy to everybody. It wouldn't be grace and mercy at that point. It's unmerited favor. That's grace. That's mercy. It's undeserved, unmerited. And that's what makes salvation and special revelation so sweet. Is that God chooses for His own delight, for His own glory, to reveal Himself to those whom He pleases. And He, for reasons known only to Himself, He doesn't reveal Himself to certain people. I don't know why, but that's the truth. And we must submit to that. Any other questions or comments before I close this in a word of prayer? We only have four left that uh, were submitted that we haven't gotten to, so Lord willing, in 2022, we'll get to those and any other questions that get submitted i hope y'all enjoyed tonight it was a great time of fellowship and food and um, i really enjoyed getting to address some of these questions in the q a uh, let's close in a word of prayer and i look forward to seeing y'all tomorrow in sunday school um, and during corporate worship let's pray father you are so kind to not give us what we deserve to receive justice eternal condemnation eternal judgment for our sins in hell Lord, not where we're separated from you, Father, but where we're in the presence of your wrath being poured out for unforgiven sin, tormenting those who have violated your law and who were not saved. God, what a dreadful thought that is. And Lord, how can it be that sinners like us have escaped such a fate? Why us, Lord, is all we can say We're not deserving of anything but your judgment. And God, for reasons known only to yourself, you've given us yourself. You've given us Christ in the gospel. You have made us your sons and daughters through faith and through the gift of adoption. Lord, that is undeserved favor. That is us not getting what we do deserve to receive, mercy, and getting what we don't deserve to receive, grace father may we leave this place tonight worshiping you for that father would you be big in our minds and in our hearts lord would you shape us into the men and women you've called us to be may the beat of our heart may the center point of all of our life be solely deo gloria to you alone be the glory father not us not fbc edna not our relatives, not our businesses or our jobs or our talents or extracurriculars, none of that, Father, receiving glory, but you and you alone, for you are the only one who has a right to receive it. God, may we believe that, not just intellectually, but in our bones, Father. Help our unbelief by your Spirit. Give us faith, Lord, to see you as the Most High and to live out lives that are in keeping with that conviction. I pray, Father, as we leave this place, that you would keep us safe. Father, that you would prepare us to worship you in spirit and in truth tomorrow on the Lord's day, the day you have appointed for followers of Christ to assemble together in local churches, to pray together, to sing together, to sit under your word, to be encouraged, to be fed, and then to go as your scattered church to witness to friends and family members. Lord, help us to be faithful in those endeavors. God, may every person in this room know how valued and loved they are by you in Christ. Father, may the youth committee and, and all of our adult leaders at FBC Ed, and may we pour ourselves out as spiritual sacrifices to serve these youth so that they might know you and enjoy you forever. And may our souls be richly edified and encouraged in our efforts to do just that. We give you thanks for tonight, Lord. We commit the rest of this weekend and this Thanksgiving season to you. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.